0: Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 17, I'd like to look at the passage with you for just a few minutes this morning. So Acts chapter 17, we'll be reading from uh, verses 16 to 34. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you know, for, we, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean." Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship," Way towards him and, and, and find him. Yet he is actually not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among, also, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Well, I don't know about you, but in my mind, one of the scariest things that I could ever do would be go inside of a submarine. Do we have anybody here who ever served in a submarine in the military? Nobody? Okay. I would be terrified to go into a submarine. You know, a submarine is just basically like a tin box. There's no windows what I, from what I hear, you don't really know when it's day or night. The only way that you know if it's day or night is by what food you're eating. If you're eating eggs, you know it's morning. If you're eating turkey and potatoes, you know it's dinner time. Uh, I've heard that sometimes they'll have one toilet for 40 men. Uh, there'll be uh, bunks that they affectionately call coffins that are stacked three deep. And uh, sometimes they'll have what's called hot coffins. Uh, Which they'll have up to three people sharing the same bunk. One person will be working and then the other person will be sleeping and then they'll switch. Basically no privacy, basically no space. But what's also interesting is the way that being on a submarine can kind of isolate you from the rest of society. Uh, In some militaries, I'm not sure about the US military, but in some militaries they really isolate the people on board and they want them to be focused on their mission. So they're not allowed to email or call people or text. They're not allowed to listen to the radio or television. They're completely isolated from the world for that time that they're on the ship, which could be anywhere from 30 days to 120 days, depending on uh, the tour. And so they're shielded from this information, especially in some militaries. And then you think back to March, and you know, you had the coronavirus you know, hitting the world, th- things going into lockdown, all of these massive changes happening, the global economy tanking. And then meanwhile, you had these people on the submarine that had no idea what was happening. They're just in their own little world. And I can't imagine what it would have been like for them to resurface uh, to reality when they, came, when they finished their tour, to find out all of the changes that had happened in society. It's like they went under into one world, and they entered back into the world in a completely different reality. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is leaving one place, Berea, and he's entering into a new rea- reality in Athens. Now in Berea, Paul and his companions encountered some devout Jews. And these people were very open and receptive to the gospel. It says in the text that they were eagerly, eager to receive the gospel. And after Paul preached to them, he preached the Hebrew scriptures to them. And it says in the text that they were checking it out each day. That they were searching the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul said were of God. And so he had a very receptive audience of people who had a background in Judaism. But then he enters into Athens, and Athens is a completely different place. Athens is one of the kind of pagan capitals of the world. Athens was known for its artistic works, the statues of their gods and their temples. And he enters into the city, and he's going to experience a a great uh, number of different people. He's going to encounter people who didn't have a background in the Hebrew Scriptures. People who believed in multiple gods. There's two people that he, two groups of people that are pointed out that he talks to. The first is the Epicureans. The Epicureans were a group of people who were essentially similar to deists. They believed uh, that a god existed, but he was kind of far apart from the world, wasn't involved in the affairs of men, and so practically they were atheists. Practically they didn't believe that God had any relevance to life. They believed that life was all about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Then you had the Stoics on the other hand. The Stoics were a little bit different. The Stoics were what you'd call pantheists. They believed that God was in all things and they were uh, focused on not being moved by the world. They didn't want the things around them to move and and influence their internal state. And so in Berea, Paul comes to these Jews and preaches the gospel to them from the Hebrew Scriptures, but he's going to have to take an entirely different approach for the people in Athens because they don't have that background. It's a completely different reality. If he preached the Hebrew Scriptures to them, they might say, well, that's great, but I'm not Jewish. I don't have that background. I'm not part of God's chosen people. We don't believe the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think the situation that Paul experiences is kind of a picture of what we've experienced in the United States in the last 50 years. I think, metaphorically, we've exited Berea and we've entered into Athens. Years ago, we lived in a culture where there was this profound Bible consciousness. Even if people weren't Christians, if they didn't follow after God, there was this belief that the Bible was in some way authoritative or inspired. And so you could have these rallies where someone like Billy Graham would get together thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And he'd get up to preach to people who were maybe not necessarily believers, but who had a background in the scriptures. And he would just preach God's word. And then thousands and thousands and thousands of people would come to faith in Christ. They had that background in, in the faith, even if they didn't believe it. But we live in a different culture Today, trying to get thousands of people together for anything is much more difficult. In 1988, Billy Graham came to uh, Buffalo, did a crusade here. Maybe some of you attended that rally. And at that rally, there was 130,000 people that came to that rally. Over 18,000 people each night for the several nights that it ran. At that rally, 7,000 people came to faith in Christ. Then they did another rally in 2012. I was actually at the rally in 2012. Billy Graham uh, wasn't there, but his son Franklin was there. And they had this kind of star-studded lineup of different bands and all these uh, really influential and and, uh, really talented musicians. And there was no admission charge to come. And I remember going there, and it was half empty. I think there was uh, 11,000 people or something like that. Still a good number of people. But you look at just a few years before that, 1988, 130,000 people, over 18,000 people each night, and you see how it's waned in, in, the, in the fact that the Bible has less uh, authority and less influence in society, and we live in a different culture, whereas if you preach God's word, sometimes people say, well, that, that's great, I understand what you're saying, I just don't believe it. Or what I've heard before, people will tell me if they hear I'm a pastor, they'll be like, oh, good for you. I'm I'm glad you're interested in spiritual things. The late evangelical uh, theologian Carl Henry prophetically said this in 1987. I know this is a lot to swallow, but I think his uh, quote is very profound. He said this in 1987, It's highly probable that in tomorrow's world, Christianity will need to fend for itself uh, tend, uh, fend for itself either in a secularized social milieu of intellectual atheism that empties the churches, or in a society where a religious sense of many coexisting gods saturates civic culture as it did in ancient paganism. In the one case, Christian orthodoxy will be charged with espousing the objective existence of a supernatural reality in an age when religion is presumed to traffic only in optional myths. In the other case, Christian orthodoxy will be charged anew with intolerance and with atheism because to deny everyone else's gods violates public piety and its approval of the plural gods. I think that we see both these realities that Carol Henry talks about. First, we see an intellectual atheism in our culture. This belief that either God doesn't exist, or if He exists, He's kind of irrelevant. He's kind of apart from the affairs of men, and not really that important to a well-meaning, uh, well-lived life. Sometimes people will believe that the Bible is full of falsehood given to fairy tales and mythical statements. That maybe there's some good aphorisms and some good uh, statements in the Bible, but it's not God's word. You, th- you think about Europe, and Europe is kind of on the fast track to being post-Christian. They're a little bit ahead of us. And a few years ago, there was a Danish Lutheran church, and they made headlines for doing something very controversial there. They were looking for a pastor, and they stipulated that the pastor had to believe in God. This was controversial, that the pastor had to believe in God because apparently there were many churches in that area where that wasn't a requirement, that you didn't have to believe in God to be a pastor. One pastor complained, personally, I prefer a good agnostic theologian rather than a fundamentalist who believes that the Bible can fit all human aspects of life. A minister's council issued a protest against this congregation saying, who can decide if a person has the correct beliefs? Rod Dreher comments, And says, in Denmark, what few church-going Lutheran Christians there are left are reduced to having to ask that the church send them a pastor who actually believes in God, and this is controversial. So we experience an intellectual atheism that God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he's irrelevant. But we also experience this growing tendency to view Christianity as intolerant. That if we deny other gods... Then we're in a sense being intolerant, and you know you think about the the ancient Romans who had all these Romans and Greeks who had all these different gods. And if they said if you said Jesus was one of the gods, they'd say, "Okay, well we'll put him in in, in and maybe we'll even build a shrine to Jesus." But if we said Jesus is the only God, that's an entirely different statement. And I think the same thing is true in our culture, as Henry says, we're experiencing this. Uh, move to see uh, Christianity as intolerant because it's incompatible with any other God, that Jesus is the one and true king. And so, in essence, the arguments that Paul was experiencing, that Paul encountered in Athens, are very similar at their core to the arguments that we see in our culture. And, And to me, that's very encouraging because, you know, sometimes we have things happen in our life and we feel like we're the only ones who have ever dealt with them. And we think that, you know, life has never been worse or Christianity has been never farther from people's understanding. But the same arguments that people have today were the arguments that were happening in, in Athens in Paul's day. And I think that as we look at how Paul uh, encountered and ministered to the people in Athens, I think there's a lot that we can learn for how we can encounter those around us with the gospel. Specifically, he tells us four things, shows us four things that we can do as we encounter and live in this new reality as we minister in Athens. First thing he shows us is that we should be moved by the world around us. It says in the text that his spirit was provoked within him, Paul, as he saw the city was full of idols. This word for provoked can mean irritate or become angry. We need to start at a place where we're moved by the things that are happening in this world. Maybe it's being moved to anger. Maybe it's maybe just having our heart broken. But if we're moved to anger, sometimes it's easy to stay in that place of being angry and not moving to a place of compassion and showing love to those around us. We live in a culture where everyone wants grace for themselves, but nobody wants grace for other people. Everyone wants to show them uh, wants other people to show them grace, but we don't want to show grace to other people. I think it's natural and appropriate to get angry upset about things that are happening around us, but I don't think that's where we should land. I don't think we should stay there because we see Paul gets angry, he gets upset and it disturbs his spirit that there's these other gods that people are worshiping, but he doesn't go and just start railing against them and and you know. Just lashing out in anger, he moved to a place of compassion. And in the end, his heart is broken for these people. We see this also with Jesus. There were times when Jesus was angry. He cleansed the people out of the temple. He uh, spoke harshly to people who were hypocrites or people who oppressed the poor or the weak. We know that as the Son of God, he would have been angry at sin, but he didn't live there. He chose to show love and compassion. He chose to have his heart broken for the sin that was around him. A Few examples in the scriptures in Matthew chapter nine it says, "And Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. Mark, 9, Mark 10 says this, as, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You know, you think of that event and you think about that rich young ruler. And, you know, there was probably a part of Jesus that was angry at that. That this man had made his money his God. And yet he looks at this man with compassion and tries to loose him from the bondage that he's in. Luke 19 says... Our world should move us. Move us to anger, but also it should break our hearts. It should move us to compassion. Move us to love. When we see those who are broken around us, it should break our hearts. When we see people in bondage around us, we should want to offer them freedom. So we should be moved by the world around us as Paul was. second thing we see in this passage is that we should understand the hearts of those around us. We see in this passage that Paul has a very profound understanding of the people's thought patterns and how they thought and how they interacted with one another. You see that he quotes from two pagan authors. It's credible to me that he does that. It's credible that he uh, knew enough about those pagan authors to be able to quote them. Of course, they could have been inscribed somewhere but from his other writings where he quotes from pagan authors, it seems like he had a pretty good understanding of pagan authors and their arguments. Now, did he believe in everything? that in, in quoting those authors, did he approve of them? Of course not. But he used the little bit of knowledge and the little bit of wisdom, the little bit of truth that was in those writers to point people to Jesus. The one person he quotes is a man named Epimedes, which... Uh, the poem is from a, a poem called "Hymn to Zeus." The other writer that he quotes is from a Stoic writer, one of the hearers, who his name was Aratus, and so he's familiar with the arguments of the people that he's encountering. Several years ago, in the 1980s, there was a problem at the Lincoln Memorial. They discovered that it was eroding uh, very fast. And uh, so they were trying to figure out why it was eroding so fast, and uh, the most obvious answer was the water. rain, but also, each day they would scrub the walls, scrub the floor, scrub down the monument. as a result, it was eroding. Then they looked further. So why are they cleaning it every day? And it turned out they were cleaning it every day because there were sparrows and starlings that would come make a mess all over the monument. So then you look further than that. So why were the sparrows and the starlings coming? Well, it was because of the spiders. There was a bunch of spiders there, and they were drawn there to eat the spiders. But why were the spiders coming? The spiders were coming because there were these little insects called midges who came from the Potomac River, and at dusk they would uh, start just swarming and mating, and they were drawn to the bright lights from the Lincoln Memorial. Now, to get to that answer you had to ask four why questions. The most obvious answer was it was the water. But really, the underlying cause was the midges that were causing this chain of events. And I think we need to kind of delve the depth of people's hearts. We can't just go by what we see on the outside. Because sometimes there's things that are beneath the surface that drive people's behavior. We don't see the events of people's lives. We don't know why they react the way that they do. Maybe the way that they're reacting is caused by a previous harm, a hurt. And so we need to get to the depth of people's hearts. We need to be student of others, as Paul was, as he was familiar with the, with the writings of the people that he was talking to, familiar with their thought patterns, so that he could preach the gospel to their hearts. And the Holy Spirit will help us to do that. He used the little pieces of truth, in their writings, to point people to Jesus. And I think that we can do the same thing. I think as we peel back the layers of people's hearts, I think that we often discover that they're looking for the right things, but they're looking for them in the wrong place. We might encounter people who are looking for peace, and rather than finding that peace in Jesus, they're trying to find it in drugs or alcohol. Find people who are looking for love, and rather than finding in that in a relationship with God, they're looking to a relationship to fill that hole in their heart. Counter people who are looking for freedom, and rather than finding true freedom in Christ, they're looking to promiscuity and just riotous living. And so we peel back the layers of people's hearts and we can discover what's truly going on beneath the surface. And then we can speak the Word of God. Then we can preach the Gospel to them. Notice in this passage, Paul doesn't quote any Scripture. Of course, everything that he says has Scriptural components behind it. It's Scripturally based. It's the Word of God. But he doesn't quote any Scripture because it wouldn't have been relevant to them as people who are not Jewish. So he listens to the people around them, he understands their heart, and then he critiques uh, their sin with the truth of the gospel. Stephen Covey once said this, the biggest communication problem is we do not listen to understand, we listen to reply. We listen to reply. We don't listen to understand, but we need to understand before we can reply. We need to understand the people around us. We need to preach the Gospel gracefully. The way that Paul presents the Gospel is masterful. I mean, you think of the way that he starts here. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. He has the perfect blend of grace and truth. He could have started and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you guys are idiots. Men of Athens, I perceive that you guys don't have a clue. Do you really believe that the God of the universe could dwell in a temple that's made by human hands? Do you really believe that you could add something to God, that you could serve Him in some way to add something to His being? Can you really be so naive not to believe in the resurrection? And then he could quote from Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these Old Testament scriptures. Now everything that he would say would be true true words it wouldn't be helpful on the other hand he could have said well i just want to hear your ideas i want to hear your thoughts on this matter he could have listened to them and affirmed them and said well that's great i don't think the same way but that's that's good and you just think the way that you're you're thinking and that's that's awesome and then went on his way just affirmed them and heard them You'd be full of grace but no truth tim keller says this truth without grace is not really truth And grace without truth, it's not really grace. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to couple grace and truth. It it requires the movement of God's Spirit in our hearts and a sensitivity to His work. But that's what God calls us to. Grace and truth. Scholar Daryl Bach writes this. He says, The Paul of Romans 1 who speaks to the sad state of society is still able to love and connect with that society in Acts 17. This also is an important lesson. Sometimes we as Christians are so angry at the state of our society that all that comes through is the anger and not the love we are to have for our neighbor in need. Those who see this anger and want to represent the faith differently can overreact the other way, almost pretending as if there's no idolatry as long as the religious search is sincerely motivated. Paul avoids both these extremes. He knows how to confront, but he does so honestly and graciously. Both message and tone are important in sharing the gospel. Here, Paul is an example of both. So, he proclaims the gospel gracefully. He proclaims the truth, but does it in the way that's the least offensive so that people wouldn't be offended by his words, but if they're offended, they're only offended by the gospel. So, we need to proclaim the gospel gracefully final thing that he shows us in this passage is that we need to be prepared for smaller miracles. Note that we have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians in the Bible. We don't have an Athens. And probably the reason that we don't have an Athens is because there wasn't a church there, or at least there wasn't a significant church there. That the ministry, the effects of Paul's ministry in Athens were very limited, One scholar writes this, although Paul saw a few people come to Christ in Athens, he had no helpers with him. There's no record of miracles being done. There's no record of a church being established. And yet even in that limited sphere of ministry, there were some people who came to faith in Christ. And that was enough. It was enough. It was a different culture. Maybe in Berea, There are many people who eagerly accept the Word of God and Paul doesn't even really have to argue with them. He just has to preach the Word of God and they're looking at the Scripture and like, okay, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. But here in Athens, he's having to debate the intellectual leaders of that day in proclaiming the Gospel. And he doesn't experience the same effects that he experienced in Berea. But still, his ministry was important. Sometimes I think that we take our understanding of ministry success from the world rather than from God's Word. What does Jesus tell us is important? What does Jesus define as success? Jesus talks about the Father going after and looking for one lost sheep. He talks about the Father leaving 99 to find just one who's lost. Now we'd say, well, we should focus on the 99, but that's not the heart of the Father. The Father cares for just one person who is lost. Matthew chapter 19 it says this, or Matthew chapter 18, it says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains? Go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Time Magazine several years ago carried a story about uh, former President George H.W. Bush, who served in World War II as a fighter pilot. And uh, when he was in the battle, he, his plane was shot down, and then he was rescued uh, by U.S. troops. And uh, he went back to the place where he was rescued. And when he went back to the, the, that place, he met a man, a Japanese man, who Uh, said that he encountered the whole rescue. And he recounts how him and his buddies were talking and just watching this American uh, pilot being rescued. And then one of the men said this. One of the men said, Surely America will win the war if they care so much for the life of one pilot. Do we care about one lost soul? One soul that needs to be rescued. We live in Athens today. We don't live in Berea. And hopefully by God's Spirit, let's pray that there's a great increase that hundreds and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. That there's a revival in our nation. Let's pray for that to happen. But if it doesn't, let's also be content. Let's also be happy with one lost soul who finds grace. Let's rejoice over one who comes to life. Let's not give up when we have to invest 5, 10, 15, 20 years in our loved ones before they come to faith in Christ. It's not easy, but it's worth it. No matter what God chooses to do through us, impacting only one life makes a difference. So Paul gives us a a lot of things to work with here as we enter into and have already been in this reality of being in Athens, a, a culture that's not necessarily friendly to the gospel, where we, people don't have an understanding of God's word like they did in years past. He shows us we shouldn't be moved, that we should be moved by the world around us. We should understand the hearts of those around us. That We should proclaim the gospel gracefully. That we need to be prepared for smaller miracles. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that You're God who cares about each and every one of us. You don't only care about the 99. You care about the one lost soul who's in need of redemption. Lord, I pray that we would have that same heart as we're living in a culture that doesn't have the Bible consciousness and the receptivity to the Gospel that maybe was there 20 or 30 years ago. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful in proclaiming your love, that we would be students of those around us, that we would seek to learn all that we can to understand their hearts, to understand where they're coming from so that we might present the living, true Word of God, the Gospel that rescues men and women from darkness. Lord, we thank you for rescuing us, for caring about us, for being there with us no matter what we face. In Christ's name I pray, amen.